So uh, changing course, this is the biological experienced patient. Uh, when to restart the same biologic, when to switch biologics, and does insurance matter? This question comes up all the time. We've heard it already this morning and in other cases, and I'm sure yesterday as well. The cases we'll get to are a 28-year-old woman with Crohn's disease previously on infliximab who had a recent ileocolic resection and now restarting medications. The second will be a 34-year-old gentleman with ulcerative colitis, a primary non-responder to adalimumab. What is the next treatment? And then finally, a 67-year-old woman with Crohn's disease in remission on vetalizumab, but stopped due to an insurance change and now is flaring. So let's dig into this first case. This is about restarting medications post-op. So a 28-year-old woman with Crohn's disease, previously on infliximab, a recent ileocolic resection, now needs to restart therapy, or at least we think she needs to restart therapy. Millie, let me start with you. What are the first things you think about when you hear this case? I know we're not giving you all the information. It's open for discussion. So the first thing I think about is that uh, I do need to know the characteristics of her time on infliximab and what her surgery was. Uh, Because it's very different when you start a therapy, inflammation is reduced, and they require a resection for a stricture. That's a therapy that would continue to be effective in the post-operative period versus a therapy she was initiated on infliximab, never responded, severe refractory inflammation. In that scenario, I likely would not choose infliximab in the post-operative setting. Great. Thanks. Uh, Bruce, so uh, what about the timing of when they were stopping the infliximab, how the surgical timing worked out in in the schedule, and then when to restart? If you can just help us think through how this process goes when you're seeing them in the office and this specific question comes up of how long am I supposed to be off my drug, when am I going to restart, and what's this gap in between? So, So, Corey, to be clear, the infliximab was continued until sometime close to operation, with the intention of reoperating, or there's been a long drug holiday? So let's first take the scenario that you, you asked with your first question of it was recently stopped, and then after Bruce asked, answers that question, I'd like to come back to you, Bill, and think about when there was a, drunk, a long drug holiday. Yeah. Well, I, I think the first thing is if you think the patient needs to continue on the drug afterward, um, I personally wouldn't advocate any long drug holiday. I don't think there's any reason to do it. Um, I believe the preponderance of evidence would suggest that there's not going to be increased risk of post-operative infections or complications. Um, Later this year, we expect to analyze data from a roughly 1,200 patient prospective study where actual drug levels were measured. And uh, my early take on the data is that um, indeed, there, there's no effect there. So, but we'll wait for the final report on that. Um, and then I don't see any reason to delay resuming the drug, so I would just keep it as short as possible and even try to keep the patient on schedule. Hopefully the surgeon's on board with that too. When you say as short as possible, can you give us some specifics? The surgeons typically would like a little bit longer. We want it always a bit shorter. I mean, what's a reasonable time period that you're telling the patient that they should get their doses a, a week after surgery okay, or does it need to be longer? Arbitrarily, I'll say two weeks. Miguel, remind us in your study what the timing was post-operatively uh, giving infliximab. So the, the studies were done in a practical sense, and to what Bruce just said, that at two weeks is usually when the surgeon is seeing the patient and making an assessment as to whether or not there's a complication from surgery. So they're essentially cleared at that point. So two to four weeks is probably optimal. Um, to be quite candid, we don't have data knowing if an earlier start or a later start, but two to four weeks is, is optimal. 
And Miguel, do I remember, coming back to Millie's point, there were a number of patients that had full-on disease, had, were on infliximab, stopped it, and went back on, and it was still effective. Is that Correct. Right? Now, in those patients, and maybe coming to, Bill, what you do if there's a drug holiday <laughs> prior to surgery, these were patients who were being treated with anti-TNF, infliximab in the case of our study, who went to surgery, and the failure was probably not primary failure anti-TNF, but the disease was too far gone, and continued the anti-TNF post-op. And Bill, exactly to your point, the anti-TNF prevented recurrence the same as it did in those that de novo started anti-TNF post-op. But but you're speculating, right? It could easily just be a full-on mechanistic failure, and when you reset, it works. Well, at least... Yes, but based on the data at a year and then the long-term data, those patients that restarted an anti-TNF still did better than those were, that were on placebo. Well, that's my, that's my point, yeah. is that a, a full-on mechanistic failure before a complete resection of active disease doesn't necessarily mean it won't work after you resect. So when you say mechanistic, not necessarily mechanistic cytokine, mechanistic disease. I'm thinking maybe mechanistic cytokine, that you... You operate because there's active disease, the patient's just not responding, and yet the infliximab will work to prevent disease after the operation. Possibly. And then, so let me ask you, Bill, how do you approach, because there are a couple questions on patients, say, on infliximab, who stop, say, three months prior. So not the patient who's on therapy, treating through, gets surgery, and continues. How do you deal with that drug holiday? Yeah. So, I mean, there's just to finish the last point, I personally think that there's not compelling evidence that infliximab won't work even if you failed it before the operation, failed it for any reason except for intolerance. Now, the drug holiday is a separate issue. My read of the literature and our sort of experience is if you've had a drug holiday of more than three or four months, that your chances of high titer anti-infliximab antibodies is about 25%. So in patients that have been previous in the prescribing information actually uh, cautions against three-dose reinduction. So I give a single dose of 10 per kilo. I measure infliximab antibodies two weeks later. If they're there and the drug is low or gone, then I stop therapy, and that's going to happen about a quarter of the time. If the drug is there, then you probably don't need 10 per kilo, and you could start in with just regular 5 per kilo maintenance afterwards and convert. um, And so, you know, you just... I give a larger dose, realizing it's got to last for a bit, and I'm not going to reinduce. And then I just check and see what happens. Sean Fred? Yeah. I, I think um, a main point that we are missing in this discussion is uh, what's the likelihood that uh, infliximab will work as a post-op. Right. And we have not so many data about that. I oh. think there are different situations. For instance, if infliximab has, give, has been given for an inflammatory patient, with no stricture, and the patient has failed with good levels, then the likelihood that the infliximab will work post-op is less. Sometimes infliximab has been given for a stricture, and the stricture was already there, and then the likelihood that the infliximab will work was much lower. Second, an important But, but where point, are those data from? Because that's not what the PREVENT trial says. No, I, 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 it's not true. And the point it, is that... It, it is true. The subgroup analysis and PREVENT shows that it works in patients who failed infliximab. Yeah, but we uh, didn't have in this uh, study patients who were uh, operated for pure inflammatory disease. 
This is my point. And the second point, which has been very well shown by the French group, is that if you have already failed two anti-TNF, the likelihood that you will respond to an anti-TNF post-op is much lower. And, and what's the evidence that any other mechanism of action works in that patient population? Sorry? What's the evidence that any other mechanism of action works in that patient population? So we have no, uh, so far, we have no uh, dedicated trial for that. But uh, the point is that the likelihood that the anti-TNF will prevent recurrence when two anti-TNF has failed in their study was much lower than uh, when only one anti-TNF or patient uh, so, so was naive. Let, let's, uh, let's ask a quick question back to Jean-Fred, then Gary. So in clinical practice without evidence, and I agree with what Bill's saying, we don't have enough evidence, but somebody who's been on two anti-TNFs going into surgery, do you continue that anti-TNF or do you switch to something else? And if so, what else? So Jean-Fred, quickly, what do you do? So if the, if the patient has failed two anti-TNF with good levels, I mean, with uh, good evidence of optimization, I will switch. And even though there is no good data, I will go for uh, NTVO or Stellara in, those, in this. Uh, so which one? Vito or Usikimumab? I think they are even to me, it's more uh, appealing to go to Vedo for some All right. So Vedo for Jean-Fred. Gary? So it all depends when the patient started the drug. If it's at a point where there's fibrosis and nothing would have worked, as was alluded to, then I think it's futile to think that the drug would benefit the patient any way you look at it. Whether they have good drug levels or not, you're dealing with fibrosis. In that patient, I would continue on therapy with what they had used initially. The problem with the trial that we're alluding to is there were no therapeutic monitoring done to really predict that. So we were assuming that patients had failed, but it was based on the investigator's decision at the time, and there were really no objective data that said these are the criteria that require you to go to surgery, and that's often what happens in clinical practice. So I think the pathway which you took to get there and whether it was true mechanistic failure where you had inflammation and you treated and the inflammation persisted, then that would be something I'd consider as a drug failure. And Great. you'd use what? I think veto would be a good choice. All right, veto, veto. Great. Well, let's. Uh, great discussion on this first case. Some of the take-home points. I think we covered all of these. Is we need to understand the history on the drug and why they failed. Was it truly a failure or, or a dosing problem? It may have been a good drug for them, but true mechanistic failures. We need to move on to a different mechanism. We have to identify if there are other disease manifestations as well. We didn't talk too much about this, but did they have active perianal disease? Did they have disease elsewhere that we need to think very carefully about? Was that drug working or not? And then we had a nice discussion on timing of restarting. When is it safe? Within a couple of weeks. This isn't within one to two months. Bruce brought up two weeks. Miguel taught us that in his study it was between two and four weeks. As soon as you're comfortable and the surgeon's comfortable, the sooner the better. And then we also had a brief discussion about reinduction and proactive therapeutic drug monitoring. So thank you for your comments. Let's move on to the second case here. This is now a primary non-responder. Does it always mean to change class? So a 34-year-old gentleman with ulcer of colitis, primary non-responder to adalimumab, what's the next treatment? Or maybe is it a primary non-response? Millie, let me come back to you. Again, the thought process of you're seeing this patient in clinic. They said they've been on adalimumab. It's not working. They're asking what the next drug is. Is it always what's the next drug? Is it always the same class? Talk us through the thought process. 
Well, uh, we, we actually have a poster here discussing this, but the, the idea of really understanding are they truly a primary non-responder is where I go to first, because particularly if they partially responded and then lost response, I think this is still a reasonable mechanism, and I would still be considering other um, anti-TNF agents, particularly infliximab, in this individual. And so this is an individual where uh, therapeutic drug monitoring can help you, but it doesn't potentially tell the whole story. So I really try to get at whether or not they were truly a primary non-responder to help me in terms of determining continuing in the anti-TNF class um, versus uh, switching. And I have had many scenarios, uh, as we uh, have a poster, that infliximab has been effective in this scenario, particularly if um, the, the, they initially seem to have something of a response. Bruce, help us understand uh, how we use therapeutic drug monitoring and primary non-response. What, what drug concentrations prove to you that you're ready to move on, or is, there, is it a difficult question to answer? You know, I think it is a difficult question to answer because all the thresholds that we talk about in therapeutic drug monitoring are based on populations of patients, and you have an individual in front of you. So um, I, I think it's a matter of biology that individual expression of TNF is going to vary from one person to another and probably one person over time in different uh, states of their disease, and that means that there's more ligand for the drug. So um, although the, the drug levels that we quote may be a guideline, they are not the be-all and end-all. Uh, the only, so I haven't told you what levels because I'm not really sure I know what levels absolutely indicate that someone has failed a drug, I guess. The higher the level, the more likely that they certainly have primarily failed the drug. Bill is going to jump in a moment after this and uh, combat this. But um, the, the only other thing that I would add to what Millie said is that you really have to objectively show me that the patient didn't respond. Um, that means looking. That practically means a flexible sigmoidoscopy, most likely. Um, you don't want to say that someone failed unless they really did fail. And people can continue, obviously, to have symptoms, even in ulcerative colitis, even when they've healed their mucosa. Bill, comments about drug concentrations here? I, uh, Bruce teed it up for you, but... <laughs> Bill, Bill, Bill's never combative. <laughs> well, I'm a pretty simple guy, as far as, I know. as far as I know. When you've got TNF around and you've got, a, and you've got antibody, the TNF's all bound up. So I think the drug level already reflects having auto-adjusted in that individual patient to how much TNF is being produced. That's just target-mediated clearance, and it's implicit in the drug level measurements. I, I think that part's okay. What we know is that in the phase three trial of, of adalimumab and ulcerative colitis, there was linear exposure response across the four uh, quartiles of drug concentration. So that means that the dosing is not optimal. It's better than placebo. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a trial that's just going to report out soon that looks at much more intensive monitoring. So a different way of saying that is that the currently labeled dosing of infliximab is more optimal for a larger group of patients than the currently labeled dosing of adalimumab. Mm -hmm. So in this example, where adalimumab went first, I think it's not a, that it's, there's a reasonable likelihood the patient might respond to either dose intensification, which is where I still think therapeutic drug monitoring plays a role, or to switching to infliximab. On the other hand, if you started with infliximab and you've got a good drug concentration, I think it's unlikely that you would respond to adalimumab. I, I tend to agree, I agree, but I guess the question is, 
how does therapeutic drug monitoring help you? You told me you're either going to dose escalate the adalimumab, the patient's going to respond, or you're going to switch. Does that level actually help you choose one or the other? It, it so, and the um, question that's coming from the audience is, is the level for infliximab, should that be 10 and adalimumab 20? So there are a lot of questions on what is the level we're targeting. Yeah, so this is one of those things where it's hard to define, but you know it if you see it. Um, the, you know, the, the systematic review published in gastroenterology said 7.5 for adalimumab. We can only study what was studied, but I, my guess is that that's too low and the number is more like 10 or 12 and a half or something. So if I see an adalimumab, I'm just going to pick a number of 15. I think that's a primary non-response, and I, would ch I wouldn't necessarily give infliximab, and I'd probably change mechanisms. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if it's 7 and a half, well, then, you know, you have the choice of trying to fight through dose escalation, or you could switch to infliximab, which might be better in that patient. So Not just take home, and then Gary, I want to ask you a different question than Millie, because there are a bunch of questions coming in. So the take home from what we heard with Bill is that he would look at adalibumab as 15 and above. I think we all agree that infliximab 10 and above are good levels. Gary, switching gears just very quickly on this patient. Um, why not use vetalizumab first? And then Millie, the same question, why wouldn't you use tofacitimib first? I think that's an option. There's nothing that says one cannot use uh, other mechanisms of treatment. And uh, to say that you have to fail an anti-TNF to try an anti-integrin is not the standard thing that we think of. Many times, as we'll talk later, insurance drives some of these decisions, if you would, as to what is permissible. But it's very appropriate uh, to see. And the best response you're going to get is with your first biologic. If you look at those that were TNF-exposed versus not TNF-exposed, those that were not TNF-exposed did better. Whatever you choose, dose intensify if needed, optimize therapy, and do your best. You always win with the first drug the most compared to the second when it's a biologic. And then, Millie, how about with our new oral, oral small molecule? Absolutely. Uh, Tofacitinib is, is an option here. Um, I would like to remind everyone that the label is for moderate to severe active ulcerative colitis. It does not say that you have to fail another therapy first. And in particular, in this scenario, if this patient truly was um, a, a primary non-responder, actually Sid Singh and Bill did a network meta-analysis that when you look at TNF uh, non-responders, actually, again, using this indirect comparison, tofacitinib is likely the next best choice. And so I would uh, definitively consider it in this individual. And the other thing is, in case you care about cost, it's the same price for 5 and 10 milligrams over the long term, so there is no dose escalation cost to that drug, whereas all the rest of the drugs, you dose escalate, it's twice the cost. With tofacitimib, correct? One, correct? one point to bring up, it's always important to look when you say non-responder. Make sure you're looking at the right time, follow the biomarkers, be sure that things aren't improving, because you may have, for example, in uh, adalimumab, and your CRP drops precipitously, and you get some benefit over time, so it may be a little delayed if you would, and not necessarily at the time where the clinical trial is. There are some patients that behave differently. Thanks, Gary. Miguel, do we have time for one more question uh, from, on this topic here? Yeah, so one more question to Jean-Fred. Um, you know, there are, there are several questions about in anti-TNFs and using combination approach with an immunomodulator and somebody to regain the response, and especially in this transient or low-level antibody. What do you do? How do you explain that? 
Yeah, I think, I think this has been very well shown, uh, especially by the work from uh, Israel, from Shomron Ben Horin. Then when you have low-level uh, antibodies, you can basically um, um, rescue the patient by adding an uh, immunosuppressor on board or by increasing the levels uh, or both. And uh, I'm, I must say that this is what I'm doing quite often. And when you increase, so tell us specifically, what do you do? How do you increase? So, for instance, I, if, if the patient is on infliximab 5, I go to 10 and I add an uh, immunosuppressor. And what level and what dose of azathioprine or 6-MP? So I always start with a full dose when uh, it's for induction. And then if it works, I will consider reducing the dose of azathioprine, as we discussed uh, yesterday after six months or one year. Okay, so instead, two point, of, instead two, of fully stopping. 2.5 milligram per kilogram azathioprine, 1.5 milligram per kilogram 6-MP. Great. Thanks, Miguel. Thanks, Jean Fred. I think we've hit on all these take-home points for this case. The, a primary non-responder needs to be defined by objective evidence. We can't just assume that they have active inflammation. And we also need to understand the drug concentration at the time of failure, where it's very hard to make a decision of where we should go next. Even if you think you're definitely moving on from that drug, checking drug concentrations to help guide you for your next choice can be very, very important. Therapeutic drug concentrations, as Bruce brought up, are not absolute. The work that was done were at a population base. Some patients need higher levels and don't make big decisions based on one point in time when you're not sure what's going on. You can always look. Dose escalation is always a possibility. The idea that a primary non-responder, if they're a true primary non-responder with good drug concentrations, it's almost always to move on to a different, almost always time to move on to a different class. But again, with this variation in drug concentrations, not being certain if they're truly failing, it might not mean you have to abandon that class totally. So thank you. And finally, panel, moving on to the last case. This is, uh, this is a bit getting back to this idea of reinduction. But a 62-year-old woman with Crohn's disease in remission on vetalizumab but stopped due to a change in insurance coverage is now flaring. So the, the idea of uh, payers telling us that they're going to change their coverage and move on to something else is obviously something, Bruce, we, we want to fight. But in this case in particular, how badly do you want this patient to go back on vetalizumab? Or do you think we should just accept what they're saying and, and pick whatever drug they want us to use. Let's say this is their first biologic. I say fight. The first biologic is the best biologic. This patient responded, remitted to this agent before. Uh, the likelihood is that uh, the patient will not have developed anti-vetalizumab antibodies. That actually doesn't happen all that often. It does happen, uh, but not all that often, and seemingly not closely correlated with loss of response, even when it does happen. And so I would push very hard to try to get this patient on the drug that worked for her in the first place. And yeah. Bruce, would you reinduce? So I, I would reinduce because the patient is sick. Um, for that reason alone, I would reinduce. Um, there may be theoretical benefits in terms of immunogenicity. We could argue one way or the other whether it is more tolerizing or more immunogenic when you're re-exposing the patient after a holiday um, with reinduction. But practically speaking, the patient is sick. Well, John Thread, that's a really good point. So in contrast to infliximab, where it's well described that you can see anaphylactic reactions with reinduction, that's not been reported, to no. my knowledge, with any of the other drugs. And I think infliximab is the most immunogenic drug. Yeah. And so in my practice, I reinduce with everything but infliximab. And, 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 and Bruce, oh, sorry, if I may, you had, you had some data, some points that maybe you can push with a small dose of uh, steroids in a patient who is flaring like that? 
you know, to uh, so, basically accelerate. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the question, what Jean-Fred is alluding to, is whether a patient like this may be co-induced, uh, yeah. co-reinduced yes. um, with corticosteroids. And, you know, generally I do prefer to avoid steroids if I can, uh, but if the patient's really sick, um, this might uh, actually increase the, uh, the likelihood of response and remission. Um, there is some evidence along those lines uh, from even the Gemini trials and uh, may, may help in a timely way to get the patient feeling better, even though I think this is a fast drug, especially for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. First uh, biologic, it's also a fast drug. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, Miguel, tell us about some questions from the audience. So there are a number of questions on immunogenicity and specifically with the different drugs that we have. And Bill mentioned that infliximab seems to be the most antibody-forming drug. So ustekimumab, let me ask this to Gary, ustekimumab and vedolizumab, just based on the studies, what is the immunogenicity rate so it's less than 10% without a question. It's 5% or so in that range to 10 if you look at the various studies that have been done. And, and the issue is that, uh, you know, as opposed to, say, infliximab, where we're going to perhaps use a concurrent immune modulator directly, it's less push to do so, uh, given the low rate of immunogenicity. And one could argue these could be on and off without having adverse events related to immunogenicity, as you can with a small molecule, as Millie has alluded to, such as TOFA, this is something that has less of a downstream bad effect. So one question then, um, switching gears a little bit, and I think the panel over the years has done a good job recently with talking about combination biologics, and Millie, we'll start with you, or I should say combination MOAs, so not just necessarily biologics. Where are we today? What are you doing in your practice? And what does the future look like? And we'll get feedback from other panelists as well. So I think the future is bright, but at this point, obviously, this is all off-label. And in my practice, um, one thing I have done is uh, if I am concerned a therapy may be a little bit slower, I will induce with um, something faster. So, for example, in ulcerative colitis, I have actually induced with cyclosporin uh, to vetaliza maintenance, and uh, I have induced with um, tofacitinib as well. And so I think that we, we right now don't have long-term data on combinations of biologics uh, extensively, but I think that some of the safety patterns of the newer biologics are, are helpful and that we may in the future be able to combine um, some of these approaches. So Bruce, short answer, same question, and then Bill. Um, yeah, in addition to what Millie said, there are occasional patients who may be on vetalizumab who uh, may have good control of their luminal disease um, but develop an extraintestinal manifestation. Um, sometimes we have added uh, ustekinumab that is a rare occurrence, and it only happens if their dermatologist prescribes it, because otherwise you can't afford it. Bill? Um, for ulcerative colitis, I really think that off-label use of combining biologics probably doesn't make sense, and those patients should go to surgery. For Crohn's disease, if there's a straightforward ileocolonic resection that's not going to be short bowel and stuff, I, I think probably still you should do surgery before just to off-label experimenting with multiple biologics. But, you know, the multiply operated patient that's short bowel or really headed towards short bowel is going to be a huge operation with a lot of clear-cut morbidity. 
Um, that's the place where we're doing it. We probably have 10 or 12 patients on it, and it seems like it works sometimes. And on it being which two? So I wouldn't mix ustekenumab and anti-TNF because I'm really not sure about the safety of those two, but I've, I've mixed Vito with either of those. So we have cases where it's an anti-TNF plus vitalizumab or ustekenumab plus vitalizumab. So stay Some, tuned. Sometimes with a little Gatex thrown in. <laughs> oh, that's a whole um, other topic. So just, so just to mention, we have this. Ten seconds, Jean-Fred. No, just to mention, we have this prospective ongoing uh, prospective study, which is called Explorer in Early Crohn's Disease Patients, combining uh, vedolizumab plus uh, Umira. It's planned for 60 patients who have enrolled uh, 25, so the study is going quite well. Good. Great. Uh, thank you. I will go through these take-home points as we ask our next panelist to come up. Thank you for a great discussion. We covered this idea that almost always coverage is negotiable. One thing to take from that, which went back and forth with the conversation, is really whatever that drug is that you're reinducing with is, is critically important to think about their antibody formation and, and make sure that we're taking that on a drug-by-drug -drug basis as opposed to just treating them all the same, as, as Bill so nicely brought up. I'm going to turn this over to Miguel for the next panel.